0: So in our series, Becoming an Emotionally Healthy Christian, we are looking at how uh, to make our emotional health stronger, because we've learned that a strong emotional life means a strong spiritual life. They're very much connected. Remember, the, the disciples would cry out to Jesus, increase our faith, they would say, and isn't that... A hard thing to do it's interesting it's something we examine a lot as followers of Christ and what what the disciples learned is what we learn and that there is no easy roadmap for a faith-filled life so there was a study done by the Barna research group and it shows that most Christians mistakenly equate spiritual maturity with this following the rules and doing good works let's ponder that just a moment most Christians in the study thought that in order to be spiritually mature you did those two things you followed the rules and you did good things now there's a lot missing there isn't there both of those are good we want to follow the rules of scripture and we want to do good things But there is something missing about a faith walk and a faith journey. The truth is that spiritual growth is not marked by a checklist of what we have done or the rules that we have followed. That happened in the Old Testament, didn't it? With 600 plus rules. But Christ came to redeem us and to set us free from rule keeping in order to have a faith communion with him, and it became a process. That's the key word. Our faith journey is an ongoing process. And so the report reveals that churchgoers aspire to be spiritually mature. That really, I think, is the goal of most Christians, that, that we all want to grow in our faith. But for the most part, Christians don't really know what that means. Uh, pastor Mark Flynn, um, years ago when he was our pastor here, gave this wonderful definition of faith that, I, that has stayed with me. And, and he said this, it's a life-transforming relationship with God that results in a desire to do good for others. So do you see how that connects good works With life transformation, which means we go from one way to another way. Galatians 2, verse 16 in the message says it this way We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to tell the church of Galatia this. How do we know? He said, we tried it. And we use that universal we to mean we as Jews following the commandments of the Old Testament. We tried it. He said, we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believe in Jesus. So he said, we used to be uh, rule, rule followers, but now we believe in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Well, how do we do that? It's so hard, isn't it, in the faith journey to, to, to understand and to know that our faith walk is something that is ongoing and we have fits and spurts, we have meandering routes that we take, we get off course, we get back on course, and sometimes it's hard to measure how well we are doing. I had a piano tuner come and tune my piano, not too long ago, and he brought this little device, and and the device had a dial on it, Uh, that looked much like a clock and so he would play a note on my piano and the arrow on that dial would point to the top like it would be high noon if it were a clock if it was perfectly pitched and so by the, the note that he played could be off and so he would see how far it was off and if it was off 10% he would know that that's how he needed to tune that particular note. If multiple keys were really off from perfect pitch, it was going to have to be tuned twice. That meant, Sheffy, my piano tuner, would be there twice as long and would cost me twice as much. I was hoping and praying that the keys would not be that far off and they weren't. It was only had to be tuned once. Well, as Sheffy was explaining this process to me, I couldn't help but think about our journey of faith. Wouldn't it really be nice to have a tuner like that? And every day, it would be set at perfect pitch. And every day, we came home, and we looked to see if we were in perfect pitch, Or if we had tilted 10, 20, 30, 50, or what percent we had tilted, wouldn't that be much easier to have the perfect tuner? Well, I would like to be able to set the perfect pitch so that all my thoughts and words and emotions and actions would never slide down that scale. And I began to think, as Sheffy was Continuing to tune the piano, that we do have a perfect pitch tuner of faith. It's God's Word. He tells us exactly how to live, doesn't He? It's our perfect pitch tuning device. He tells us how to stay tuned in to just the right pitch of faith. He tells us in Psalm 119, verse 105, and this, this isn't in your notes, but you can put that scripture down. Sometimes I do my lessons early, and I ponder, and I pray, and then something else comes to me, and this is one of those something else. Sometimes it comes to me before I get up here, and sometimes it comes to me while I'm standing here. So this is not in there, but Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a what? It is a lamp to my feet, and it is a light to my path. It's our tuner. And in Colossians 1, verse 10, we read, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what we set out to do during the day. And you know there are myriads of verses that remind us of how to be tuned into our faith. That's what the Scripture does for us. It's a wonderful reminder. So today I'm going to walk us through some stages of faith that um, I learned uh, from a, a wonderful author whose name was James Fowler. He had a Ph.D. in developmental psychology. He was a United Methodist layperson. He was a director of the Center of Faith Development at Emory University, and he was a pioneer in the study of faith development. His book, Stages of Faith, is a groundbreaking classic. And so he describes in this book the six stages that pilgrims of faith invariably travel. And these six stages formed the basis for my dissertation research for my doctorate that I completed in 2008. I began to study the, the stages and was so fascinated with what he said and his body of research and uh, all of the churches who had been studying it and using it, and I decided to use that as my dissertation research, and it was also a project that I did through our church so that I could learn about faith's development of our church members and was given the wonderful go-ahead by our pastor to do that. And here is what I was so fascinated by. James Fowler based his research on something that is so near and dear to me. It it was based on our brains and our cognitive development. It was based on our moral development and our social development. And what he found were similar patterns in faith development to how we are developing morally from infancy through adulthood and how how we are developing socially through all the years of our life, and how we are developing mentally from the time of childhood through adulthood. And he made those intersections with faith. I found it so fascinating and and so true and so real. And so I dug into that. Um, And so what he tells us through this research is that faith progresses. And as it progresses, it takes us to a great degree of internal complexity. And from the ones who've spoken today, they've addressed that internal complexity where we, as we grow, we begin to think differently and we begin to consider our faith and our journey and where we were and, and where we are now and what that process looked like. And so what what we know is that our faith journey uh, undergoes continuous development in the life cycle. It's not static. Now, we're grounded in faith, and we have a faith through God that is unchanging, but the way it looks in our life is a constantly changing process because we're human and we err, and we fail, and we sin, and we have to make a course correction. And we have things that happen in our lives that we need to deal with and address. Well, I'm going to share Fowler's six stages simply as a tool. It's not the definitive measure of faith stages, so don't hear it that way. It's a tool. There are other tools out there. They're all pretty similar. They call them different things or put different numbers by them, but they're pretty similar. For each stage, I'm going to share with you a tool, a, a number and an age category, and you'll have a, a, a visual in your handout where you can see there's also a name for it. I'm not gonna spend much time on those names, uh, but each stage, will show the age, at kind of an implied age, but individuals go through the faith journey at different ways and they progress through it in a, in a different time frame. So sometimes we go through a stage and we get stuck and then we go back to another stage and then we jump forward and then we get stuck again and we move forward and we begin to examine and that's the truth of how life is uh, in our journey. So today we're going to go on this trip We're going to go on a journey, and we're going to go to see how faith grows and changes during our lifetime. And so as I share, I want you to be thinking of your own journey of faith. Think when I begin to tell about childhood and how faith can look in childhood and and what's going on in the other aspects of development. Think about your own life and where you were. And then see as you grew older how it might have changed. See how your story intersects with the descriptions that I'm providing you. So the one thing I didn't put on there was the infant stage. Uh, we're going to look at, at the first stage one begins with two. But I, I realized after I did this that I did not address the first two years of life. So this is a critical part of our development because that is when we develop two things, faith and trust, in the first two years of life. Here's the visual I want you to have of the first two years of life. And if you had it, it was an important step of your faith growing. And if you didn't have it, it could have been an impediment. And it looks like this. a lot of hugging, a lot of tenderness, a lot of kissing because that is when children learn to trust. They learn to trust their caregiver. They learn to trust the primary person in their life who is giving them security. If that is missing in the first two years of life, then that is going to be a challenge when that person grows older because they perhaps never develop trust. And you can imagine children who are are born um, into um, poverty and the child is given to some orphanage, perhaps in a third world country, and they get touched maybe once a day, maybe once every other day, and they're not really cared for, they're having a hard time developing trust. So touching, kissing, loving, holding, are the first steps developing trust and faith. And then we move to stage one. Typically this is ages two through the ages of six or seven. Remember last week I shared with you that by age seven we have an imprint on our life and that that's how we see the world. So what we tell our little ones through age seven is critical to their worldview. Well, a child in this age, uh, growing in their faith life, is influenced by the examples they see in front of them. They're influenced by moods of people, of actions of people, and by the stories that adults share. The child is really imaginative, and they're influenced by images and pictures, and that's why we give them those little books to read that just have pictures on them. And so they're being influenced at an early stage about God by the books we share with them so they can be imaginative. They're influenced about how the world revolves only around them. Remember those years? They're developing a sense of self. And they are determining in this period morals, what is right and wrong. So the foundations of faith are being uh, developed through their interactions every day with adults. And so the primary caregivers in a faith community begin to rely on the larger community to help them establish and affirm the values that they want to instill with them. And so it's very important if they want to instill Christian values that they bring in the larger group, the nursery workers, the, the uh, Bible stories they're going to hear in Sunday school and being exposed to church and seeing the images of church and talking about the influence of, of people of faith in their life. They're influenced by religious rituals and the symbols of the church and asking questions about what that means and, and why, do, why do we light candles at certain times or, or what is this about the bowl for baptism or the baptismal pool. They're, they're very impressionable about that. They love stories of scripture, especially those vivid Old Testament stories of Daniel and the lion's den and David and Goliath. They want to know that good wins out over evil. That is so important at developing in that age group. Once that image of God and faith is imprinted, by age seven, it cannot be forced out of existence. It takes a lot of work to get that imprint changed if it was an imprint that is not a healthy spiritual or emotional imprint. It can happen. It just takes a lot of work and a lot of awareness. So that image through age six is powerful. It's long-lasting. But we also know that even if it's a healthy imprint and a wonderful imprint of God who is loving and kind and good and can be nothing but that, That even as they grow and learn, they will have transformations. And they will also know that that will be fine-tuned as well, how they see God. It will be tested throughout their lives. Now here's a caution in this stage. Adults who did not have the guidance of loving, faith-filled adults might have trust um, trust issues that have impacted their faith development. And so as a result, some adults might remain in this stage of faith because they did not move beyond self. They still believe the world revolves around self. They have a misunderstanding of stories of Scripture. They may have misunderstood who God is, And that they may have misunderstood that that and think that God is um, always after them, or that God is a God to be afraid of. So they remain egocentric and often are not open to conversations about scripture and what it truly means. So that's stage one. Let's look at stage two. We get into the elementary ages. So at this age, Remember, the child is in school, not so much connected to the home with mama and daddy every day. And they begin to realize that life has moved beyond self. They become more conversational. They talk about faith and and they talk about God and things that have to do with the religious life. And they begin to think differently. Now they're thinking more logically. They're thinking more orderly. They're learning this as they're in school. They're using concrete images. Children at this stage do not think abstractly, they think concretely. And so they're thinking of images in Scripture as being fixed, concrete images instead of some of them being representative. They can't get to a deeper meaning of Scripture because they're stuck on a fixed image. At this age, we're open to hearing the viewpoint of others. We want to know what others think. And so children find meaning in their stories. They want to hear the stories of Scripture, and we want to encourage that with them. We want to tell them the stories and ask them what they think about it. And the child relies on the stories to find meaning in the world. They judge the world now at this stage of life in elementary school uh, based on what is fair and what is fair to them. And this is one of the things kids say is, and it's just not fair. And what they mean is not fair to me. So children uh, need at this stage to know and understand, they begin to develop a sense of justice that goes beyond the self. And so they they want to at this, we want to make sure and, and we hope that that we did heard stories of our faith and heard stories of our denominations and of our churches and of our families. That was important in helping them to develop an understanding of where they came from and, and how their life looked and how their church looked. So children, as they hear more stories about God and hear stories about Jesus, they are beginning to see that love is an action. That's an important step that love is an action. They see that justice is different from fairness. That's an important step that a lot of adults never did really understand, that God is a just God, but fairness is a separate issue. For Christians, morals and religion are connected. Morals and religion are connected because we know that God is deeply concerned about love and justice. So for Christians, our moral development comes from our faith. And that's why we see a difference in other cultures and other religions because their moral beliefs maybe have a different fixed point. It may not come from the God that we serve and love. In this stage, this, this is a key The child believes that all good things get rewarded and all bad things get punished. And so here's where they get stuck. They get stuck when bad things happen to good people because they make the assumption that they must have done something bad because they are getting punished. And that's a misunderstanding. Of who God is. They misunderstand what it is to be good, what it means to be bad. They misunderstand having consequences for our bad choices but living a righteous and humble life that God um, would would want us to live but still the bad things will happen to us. We're going to look next week at the life of Job. And we're going to see him as an example of someone who lived a righteous life and still bad things happened to him. And we'll hear what God says about that. So here's a caution in this area. Some adults do not move beyond this stage. Some people continue to want what's fair and what's just to him or to her. So these often take the Bible so literally that they're only looking at the concrete examples of the story, and they're not recognizing the value and the deeper meanings of Scripture. They're not, in other words, able to apply the meanings to their own lives. Now, sometimes congregations get locked in this stage because they become too rigid, they don't uh, they don't look at scripture through various lens and different interpretations and they they typically rely on just what they've been told to believe without filtering it through truth without doing self-examination without digging into scripture to see what it means and and even going to uh, the other various translations and various interpretations in scripture just to ponder it they've simply listened to what somebody who is either healthier or unhealthy as a christian telling them what to believe uh, this happens often in individuals and in congregations they do not formulate reflective meanings from scripture so they are uh, they don't do the thing that that i've Taught for so long to do have self awareness and self reflection. And so they just are living in acceptance of what other people tell them to believe. And see, children can do that because they are sitting in most of their life as children in elementary school, they're students, whether the student in the home or a student in a school or a student in a Sunday school class, that's where they spend their lives listening to what other people tell them to do, and we want to make sure they're taught early on to examine, to have conversations, to ask questions about it. So what we want to look at with each of these stages now is when someone is ready to transition to the next level of faith and understanding about their faith. So when an individual then begins to reflect on the meanings, he's starting to transition into the next phase they're starting to ask questions about who god is and what this means and how it can apply to me and and why did this happen and what what is it about the the uh the the stories that they say why did this happen to daniel and what does it mean that this happened to daniel and and what about the the prodigal son and he came back and they're starting to ask well what does that mean to me and they want to reflect on those meanings. That means they're ready to have a more personal relationship with God, and that leads us to the next stage. Typically, it happens in adolescence, but as I've said, some people get stuck and they never move past certain levels of understanding of their faith. So in adolescence, beliefs are influenced by significant others, and influence extends beyond the family. And so now then we're into the preteen and teenage years and our youth are listening to other people. And so this person now is forming a clustering of beliefs. See, they're collecting beliefs and values. And they're trying to make meaning of those. Adolescents, we know, feel the need to belong. And so we just think about their own development and how they're always trying to find the right look, the right clothing, the right hairstyle, the right music, the right language to use. They want to be seen in the right places with the right people. That's their, their youth Development that's natural. Well, that impacts their faith community also because they start understanding and listening to and perhaps adopting the beliefs of a larger community. Adolescents believe that people should behave in good ways. This is an important aspect that is foundational to them, that they've been taught we need to do behave in good ways and live according to the family and the community expectations. So that's an important part of their moral development. The actual more important part is that that larger community is a faith filled community that has the shared values that the parent wants them to have if the parent is a follower of Christ. Otherwise, they're collecting values from lots of different kinds of communities, and that's where we want to be careful about the influence of that youth have. And you think back at your own life and maybe who who influenced you and what communities were influencing you and what were the expectations. So youth start relying on the consensus of a valued group. We call that peer pressure, don't we? It's in this stage that individuals begin to conform to the religious beliefs of the group. This is where they have an identity crisis In adolescence it emerges as they begin to notice the difference between their values and the values of others that's such a key point see they now have this ability to look at what others think and do and hold it up for examination and this is why they come home and you came home and I came home we all came home and said but they're all doing it and we say, why don't we do this and that? And they don't have to go to church on A, B, and C. And why do I have to do this and that when they don't? Because they're having an identity crisis. So drawing our preteens into that faith community and helping them develop a sense of belonging and ownership is crucial for faith development in the teen years. The stories, the rituals, the discipline, and the interaction with adults who are in a caring faith community is so important for our youth. And then helping them, guiding them through their own growth in faith are essential for our youth during this time. When um, I used to talk to parents who had children going through confirmation. This was a key point I honed into about the things they could do in their own home. And one of the things was uh, that I asked them to do was to have intentional faith development opportunities. Intentional. We go to church. Yes, we will be in a youth group. That the parent gets to make those choices um, and it's intentional. Uh, yes, and we have prayer time, and we are thankful we have a pattern in our life. And, and so many miss that, and it, it perhaps then becomes a gap in faith development. Well, what Fowler learned in his research, that a considerable number of adults were best described in this stage, and they stayed in this stage. Stage three Christians, now in this stage, are highly committed to the church and to the extended family. That is the wonderful aspect of this. They're committed to the church and the extended family. They say things like our church, or my church, or my theology, my way of believing in our church, and our worship style. uh, It's it's a part of who they are. And key leaders are held in very high regard in this stage. Uh, They are often revered their lifestyle and their mannerisms are sometimes copied. And so there's this sense of unity and, and we're all in this together and this is our church and this is what we believe and this is where youth really connect to a youth pastor or a youth director because they want to hold somebody in high esteem, this authority figure who is, is guiding their way. And when this is all working great and well, it is so healthy to have that. It's what we want. It's what we strive for. Well, stage three person... Uh, wants to create those values they want to learn more they want to have more information uh, they uh, want to see themselves as a part of something bigger and so the individual begins to examine and critically reflect on the teachings and the background of, of his faith journey and the background of the church and denomination and the religion they also want to critically examine their faith if it hasn't emerged and start asking questions about it this person is secure in themselves and in their beliefs so if they've come from a out of the adolescent they're no longer in the adolescent stage but they're a fully grown adult this is how it looks they love being a part of the group What happens often is they are secure in the beliefs of the group and the values of the group and the church and the denomination as long as they are in the company of those who share the same views. Now, pause on that because that is the key point here. As long as they are a part and in the presence of and under the teachings of those who share the same values in the same church, the denomination, the class, the group, the family. Outside their group, they may have doubts and questions that they're unable to articulate. And this is if they haven't done enough self-reflection and self-study and questioning and digging in to know what they truly believe independently, and why they believe it. Because one who is still in stage three of development is not self-differentiated. Now, if you've been coming to all these, you've heard me say that word several times. Self-differentiated means that I stand alone in in my understanding of who I am and what I believe, and I have strong convictions, and I'm willing to speak up for those and I don't have to do what others are telling me to do and are pushing me to do, and I, I don't feel the pull that while the pull may be to uh, betray and to, and to think a different way, no, I'm standing firm in the, convicti- the convictions I have through my faith and my relationship with Jesus Christ. So at stage three, that has not happened. So when you step away from what you're in the class, you're in the study group, you're in the church, and you hear the sermon, but you step away outside of it and you're in front of those who don't believe, sometimes the stage three person is ill equipped to answer who they are. So Christians who remain in stage three three are very influenced by those in the close close circle. So he or she will have difficulty constructing and maintaining an independent perspective they're usually considered conformists because they're conforming to the group. They um, will often say, this is the way we've always done it, why do we need to change? They haven't examined why they've always done it. Uh, They view those who have different opinions as those people, that group, the other denomination, those other people, they are different kinds of people. And so authority in a, for a stage three person is always from the top down. Now that goes beyond having respect and high regard for people who are over us in authority. It goes to a place of reverence and the person that has everything, all the answers, knows all, all things and um, I don't have to do any work to figure it out myself. Do you understand what I'm saying? because what can happen if the person in authority falls? See, I put all my hopes, all my faiths in the person who has fallen, and then I am crushed in my journey. So here's a caution. Conflict or controversy within the church is highly threatening. Some people never develop the ability to think abstractly so they never move from this stage. So the inequality of power between leaders and followers is really great. It's like if if, if all the leaders are there and then the rest of the people are are way down here, there's no equality, they don't have their own journey to work through and sort through, we just do what the top tells us, completely top down. So what can be the danger of individuals in this situation? Now, look, we're we thinking now of, of both teenagers who are developmentally supposed to be in this stage, and, and just think, if they are in this stage and they have been taught that only authoritative figures know everything and you don't have to know things, you don't have to have your own personal journey, think about how they can be victims of abuse, They can uh, have predators who are after them because they're not thinking through. Uh, They can have a group of followers with just very few leaders. They can have controlling leaders. Um, This is where sexual abuse comes in because the authority figure is telling them they have to do and they they live in fear. Well, when a stage three Christian centers beliefs on the individual— and that individual falls in any way, the stage pers- three person's faith may shatter. So if a church is is built on just the minister and, and, and they don't have the other aspects of a faith community and it's all about what the minister says and the minister leaves, the church could fall apart. They feel highly, the church, per- the person in stage three feels highly threatened because the center of their faith and security is largely outside of himself and he feels betrayed by a respected leader and what he translate that is as is a failure of his own faith so this person now has had a crisis of faith and so this is where we get when we're in stage 3 with a crisis of faith that can look so many different ways and this person then has to decide if they are going to move through the crisis or remain stuck and forever scarred by the episode or the incident. Now, the life crisis then that people can have can drive the stage three person to despair. And they're at a very pivotal point in their faith journey. And so they can, as we all can do in any crisis that we have in our life, we have three options. regress in our faith walk and and go backward, back to stage two. We'll just believe on just the concrete level, just tell me the story. Oh, yeah, that was a good story. I'm just going to be baseline. So I can regress in it. I can become stuck in that level of faith, or I can break through the wall and move forward. So this is a test of faith. We all go through them. We all have been through a test of faith, through an episode that causes us to question, to question who God is, who other people in the church are, why people have failed and why they make bad decisions and who God is in that situation and where is he. And when a person is ready to transition from that level to move through and break through the wall, they uh, they emerge to the next day, uh, usually after some experience that propels them forward and they make a decision on how they're going to break through there's been a threat to their religion their denomination there's a personal crisis there's a crisis in the world and 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 it happens all the time when you hear of hurricanes and tornadoes and and things that happen around the world and we all pause and have this collective moment where we say how could this happen and where's God and why is God doing this and people examine that and they either get stuck they regress or they work through it. So the individual who's ready to move beyond this stage is the one who is able to critically reflect and turn into God, turn toward God to help help explain his own beliefs and his own values, to really examine what their faith is. And this person then is on the journey towards self-differentiation, knowing her beliefs and being able to sort it out, work it out, and to stand for convictions and break through the wall. And so this in, in the life of a youth often, often happens with their moment of change, life crisis and change, is leaving home is part of the life cycle. See, we were talking about adolescence. Some adults get stuck there in the adolescent level, but for the adolescent, it happens when he leaves home. He goes to college, moves out of the house, gets a job, And so they're no longer influenced by the the family of origin the home and they have to begin to examine how do i need to live how do i want to live and and what is is god uh going what work is god going to do within me and so that is the leaving home experience and so uh this is part of our life cycle and whether it happens at 18 or it happens later because We have a launching period in life. The life cycle is you get launched after high school and you go to college. But for some, they stay stuck there. And they're not really thinking independently and and moving forward in in their faith for a long period. So this could be a long period of time where they are uh, still stuck in the stage three level. Well, here's stage four that happens typically in young adulthood. Uh, It could be the 30s or the 40s. This is a hard period. Uh, it's the stage of angst and struggle. It, it's the stage where we, we face difficult questions because we've come through the stage three where we, are, uh, we have a foundational faith and, and we're trying to wonder what, what our role independently is independent from the person in authority and the person who's teaching and the person who's preaching and and we're trying to figure it out on our own and so we're beginning to form this new identity of faith and this is an interruption then of what we've always taught been taught and learned and understood about those external authority figures we still respect them we hold them in high regard we need them we want them Uh, Churches need to have leadership, and we need to have biblically uh, responsible teachers. Lead. We want that. And at the same time, we're to listen and filter and examine and think through and, and take it a to another level of understanding and, and going home and st- digging into Scripture and examining it for ourselves. See, both of those are very important. We need leaders guiding us through, and we also need to be responsible. So this is hard. We have to kind of do some things on our own, and we have to self-reflect on our struggles. And so at this stage uh, in the life cycle, we begin to uh, find commitments, and we begin to think about what we believe independently and what our attitude is, and we're not defined by the group. Now that's a key point, because everything up to, through stage three is we're defined by the group. And so now we are standing against the group sometimes. We are becoming self differentiated. We're beginning to question and, and examine and maybe reclaim our values and beliefs. And so we have some unavoidable internal conflict and tensions that we begin to, to hold. And so what we what we often do is we then look at what we've been taught and what we've studied and we learn. And what happens very often is that we realize, oh, yes, it is the truth. Oh, yes, what I learned is true and I figured it out. The light bulb has come on and I'm not just saying and doing and believing and living out these principles because somebody told me to do it, but I came from this background where I had some wonderful, principled, godly people leading me, and what they were telling me was the truth, and I figured it out, and I don't have to wonder now. Or we say, oh, dear, I had some unhealthy people teaching me, and that what they said wasn't really true, and God wasn't that kind of God. God wasn't a, a, a mean God, and God wasn't just looking out to get me, and, and I need to examine that, and I figured out that is not the truth of the faith. And so you start to, that, that is disconcerting, isn't it? It's like I've been told these things that aren't really the truth of the gospel because I'm looking at the scripture to see if it holds up and if it stands up to the truth. And so then we begin to accept beliefs and practices based on a choice, a choice and a a lot of self-reflection and deep insight and and work instead of being told to think or believe or practice. And so this, this now person is in a new place in faith. They are owning their faith after deep reflection and study and and a deep abiding prayer life with God for direction and guidance and helping us through it's this personal journey that we have begun to be on with practicing our faith the way that that scripture tells us to and so sometimes when this happens that person that's in another level of development will begin to criticize this person because now they say that the stage four person thinks he's too big for us and too important for us and he's not adopting the way that we think and that he's going against the norm. And so that, again, is that level of anxiety and struggle that's a part of this stage of our faith. So here are the cautions. Uh, The stage four person can become narcissistic then. See, on the other hand, they can criticize or they can now say, I have figured it out and you all are crazy. Look at what you've done and and you've got to quit believing that way and that's all a bunch of lies and, and you should figure it out for yourself. You see, then they go into this phase of unhealthiness and, and telling everybody else how to figure out. And so again, that all has to be tempered with going back to scripture and figuring out how to live and how to act and how to respond and how to talk and how to share with others. So this stage is um, an uncomfortable one, and it can last at different, different uh, time frames. It can last a long time. If someone doesn't come through it through the wall with an understanding then where they live is trying to figure it out and can't figure it out just tired of all those people telling you what to do and how to live and why do they get all the information and who do they think they are and I've seen them do this and that and they're such liars and they're such hypocrites and they don't have it figured out and so I'm just not going to be a part of that anymore and they say stuck in this level of struggle and anxiety. So this is reflecting the dark night of the soul. That period of struggle and anxiety, of figuring out what we believe and who we are in the faith. This is a wall that we want to push through to get to that other side. And so when we're trying to figure it out we want to lean in to the things that will help us figure it out. Go to a godly person who's been through the struggles and is, it on, the, is on the other side. Go to deep prayer with our Father to give us wisdom and guidance to, to start reading Scripture and looking at different versions and, and reading books by authors who are, are describing this and that have stood the test of time and they're on this journey that will, they will go with you. And so that, that will help us to get our way through this tough period, this stage. And so those who are out of the adolescence area can also uh, find that what happens to them in this stage is something that calls, calls them to their knees. And this, Because this is the stage of struggle and something that calls us to our knees are things that we experience with a uh, a loss of some sort a death uh, a marriage issue a family issue uh, a deception of some sort a job loss um, some some fertility issue uh, anything that is going to bring us some kind of struggle and and help and cause us to question our faith is all a part of this For youth, it's the leaving home and trying to figure it out. For adults who get into this stage of conflict and struggle, it's perhaps because they have faced a wall where they now question everything in their life, including their faith. They find that they begin to blame God instead of finding God, and they just can't figure out how to break through the wall. Well, the transition is a person who realizes they can no longer stay stuck. And they know that they have to find a way to go from their breakdown to a breakthrough. And they're willing to take that vulnerable, heartbreaking story to somebody who can help them break through the wall. They're really willing to recognize they're in a struggle. And they're in a struggle for their faith. And they don't want to live there anymore. And so they begin to find another way and a path forward. They, they feel propelled to dig deeper and to move for, further and have a further, deeper recognition of who God is. And so they begin to experience awakening of thought, a self-examination that tells them, I'm ready to move forward from this and not stay stuck in the anxiety, in the bitterness, in the hardship, I am ready to move forward and break out of this and have a deeper walk with Christ. Sometimes this happens through the life cycle of getting older and wiser. And sometimes it happens because we are ready for something new and different and a breakthrough. And this is the stage five. This person is aware that they have self-limitations and they, they are okay with that. They develop a greater tolerance for people who are different, they're ready to become a reflective thinker. They recognize that truths can be approached from different ways. They can get to the truth of something by examining a lot of different things and opportunities and thinking about it and discovering the truth through Scripture and through talking to other people and through examining situations and holding intention. what they're thinking and what they're feeling and combining those to move forward. They're ready to do that. They're also uh, expressing interest in learning more about their own religion and other religions and other cultures. They want to know and understand what other people think and believe. They, they find comfort in spiritual practices, whereas uh, sometimes in other stages they do them as a, a checklist. But they get to this stage and they find comfort in spending time in solitude with God. They appreciate the rituals of their faith. They begin to feel a sense of purpose and usefulness and accomplishments in their faith. They want to learn about God and, and how he created them and how he, he created others. They become more active in their faith. And it's easier to, to do and to give and to share because it brings great joy. And it's not about self They've moved away from this sense, uh, this egocentric view of life. They're at ease with the differences of others. They have this awareness of a social social conscious, and, and they are aware of prejudices in life, and they don't want to fall prey and victim to that. They want justice done, not a sense of just fairness. They, they um, want justice done without the confines of class or religion or race or gender. They're more inclusive and accepting of others. And they come to the conclusion that it's okay if I don't have all the answers. It's okay that, that God has the answers and he can cast judgment and I don't need to do that. A caution in this area is this person is often ready for closeness to what is different from herself, yet is still somewhat threatened by the differences, and they're okay with that, but they have to be careful not to feel threatened by those who are different. Um, A transition is in this rare case. It's very rare To move to the next level. And it calls for radical actualization. This stage represents the ideal. Persons in this stage are grounded in a oneness with God. Their visions and commitments free them from passion, for passionate selflessness and love. They're devoted to overcoming division and oppressions and violence. They have integrated faith in every aspect of their life. Some even to a degree of martyr-like characteristics, a complete decentralization of self. They're drawn to action. They're drawn to making a positive change in the world. They fully see God's goodness in people, and they want all people to live in peace and harmony and love with each other. Uh, they have this zeal for life and for their faith, and it takes them often to unfortunate people in very troubled places in the world. These persons uh, often are honored after death, um, more so than during their lives. And do you know that there are very few that Dr. Fowler would have called out in this, this uh, stage of faith? But he did name three. Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., and, of course, Jesus. It's our aim, isn't it? It's our goal to live a life like Jesus lived. Well, research shows that most Christians get stuck in stage three or four because either they don't examine their beliefs or... They get stuck in the dark night of the soul. I'm going to say that again. Most Christians get stuck in stage three or four because either they don't examine what they believe, so they stay stuck there with what other people tell them to believe, or they get stuck in the dark night of the soul, the wall. The wall that we have a hard time breaking through. Exodus chapter 6, and if you have that, have your Bible or you want to look at it in your phone and, or refer to it later. I think the story of the, the walls of Jericho is a wonderful example to help us when we are dealing with a dark night of the soul and we're dealing with the walls that we need to break through. We need to break them down because we've had a heartbreak, a heartache. We've had an unfortunate situation that has us stuck And so this story that uh, we see um, tells us this picture of a particularly strong wall. And it kind of represents, reflects the walls that prevent us from moving forward in our faith. If you recall, the Israelites had been wandering in the wilderness, that scorching wilderness, and, and they have now come face to face with the wall of Jericho. The, the walls now have come to them 400 years after slavery in, in Egypt. And so they have come from this life in the wilderness to the point of the promised life in Canaan. Now these walls were not ordinary walls, they were impassable, they were heavily fortified. Uh, there are different uh, measurements that I've read for the wall but there are two walls. One's an outer wall, it's, it, it could be as high as 20 feet Tall and six feet wide, and then there's an inner wall, and it was about 30 feet tall and, and 20 feet uh, wide, and it was separated by this 15 feet garden walkway. There were no earthly, worldly ways to break through the wall at that time. And so, the plan that was given to them by God was, was crazy, it was unfathomable. It was only a plan that God could create. And and here is the simple but crazy plan he told Joshua. He said, I want your men to, to walk silently around Jericho and those walls for six days. And then after that, I want you to take seven circles around the walls on the seventh day. And then I want you to shout. Well, it seems absurd. It seems so foolish. But Joshua followed God's instructions to the letter. And so they they walked slowly around those walls for six days. And then on the seventh day, they went seven times around and the trumpets were blown and the people shouted. And instantly, those massive walls crumbled. Israel won that victory Joshua and his army obeyed, and God saw them through. Now, what do you do when you're not expecting a wall? When you're expecting milk and honey, and you're confronted with a wall? We've all been there. Each of us faces a walled city sometimes in our lives. It's a place of hopeless defeat that we think we might can get through but there's this barrier that is separating us from God and it's this dark night of the soul. And when we come to face our Jericho, we have two choices. We can flee from it or we can face it. And if we flee from it, there's only one place to go And that's back in the wilderness and when we decide to face it God will show us how to overcome the wall he will send us the guidance when we go to him when we fall prostrate before him he will show us he will show us through the trusted wisdom of Christian followers he will show us through Scripture. He will show us through that sermon we never expected that would be able to speak to us in that moment. He will show us through the wisdom of following what others have done in similar situations. He will throw us, show us through Bible study lessons. He will give us a creative measure like circling your wall. But maybe you're just stuck there. And sometimes the disappointment of hitting the wall has wounded you so deeply that you you fear even trusting God. Or, or maybe your focus is on the problem, the insurmountable walls. And maybe you're living in fear of the wall. Maybe you've become angry with God. And maybe you're living in denial at the wall. Or maybe you're like some people who just spend all their days looking up at the wall and saying, Nothing can be done. Maybe you are living your days marching out the wall, and around the wall, and staring at the wall, and wailing at the wall, but the walls have still not crumbled. Maybe you feel as if you've spent your six days circling the wall and trusting God, and you're just tired, and it's time to give up. And what I'm here to remind us of is that it took Joshua the seventh day When the promise came and the walls came tumbling down. And so we look at what Joshua did. He obeyed God. He listened to God. He focused on God's plan. And what we know is that when we focus on God's plan, we can overcome the wall. So here are some steps to help you move forward through your wall. First of all, meet with God concerning your Jericho this is what Joshua did, he listened to God. What we learn in the previous chapter um, in the book of Exodus is that he met with God right before that and he fell before God and worshiped him. He trusted God's plan, he listened to God. And then we want to march around to Jericho God's way. Sometimes we question the plan he gives us and we, and we need a better explanation But here, the point is simple. We are to march around the Jerichos just the way God told us to do, leaning not into our own understanding, but know that he knows how to crumble our walls because he did a bigger wall. March silently. Why did God say to march in silence? See, those are what, this is one of the questions that we begin to ask when we move forward in our faith. We start asking questions about what we've read. Why did he say, go silently around the walls? He's calling us to solitude and to, to quiet obedience. Let's not miss this point. He wants us to meditate on our problems. Meditate on them. Think about them. Pray as we're marching around the problem but we keep moving forward around them because that's what he tells us to do. Notice they marched in the day and they rested at night. There was that balance of working it out in obedience and then letting God do his work. He wants us to spend time in silence and quiet as we're moving forward. And that's when we can hear his voice. March slowly and stay faithful. God laid out this battle plan. And I wonder how many of those men were like me and would have said, are you kidding me? This is crazy. Why march six times? Why do I have to go slowly? I have the highest energy of all the personalities and I walk faster than anybody else. Why can't I go at my pace and you people go at yours? Why can't we just rush in Let's just go for it. Are you tired of circling your wall? Are you longing for the day when somebody sounds the trumpet and you get to shout? Well, sometimes taking down our walls is a long process, but he expects us to be faithful and do it the way he says. Let's not forget that Noah was locked in an ark for 377 days. Elijah dealt with no rain for three and a half years. The woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment was bleeding for 12 years. Jacob waited 14 years to marry Rachel. And Abraham was 75 when he was promised Isaac and was 100 when Isaac was born. God will be faithful. He will give us our time to shout. And this next strategy is think on the other side of the wall. I want you to know that before the battle even started, God told Joshua these words, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. God told him that before the battle. He said, I've given it to you. It is yours. He did not say this. He did not say, I'm going to give it to you. He said, it's yours. It's what he tells us. He says, I have your victory. I have it. You just need to circle the wall and then go to shouting when you see my answer. God is in our future and he acts through the impossible. And he acts as the the impossible has already happened. And that's how we need to think. Faith acts as though the impossible has already happened. We need to think on the other side of the wall imagine life on the other side of your wall think on that it's a beautiful strategy it's something that i teach and i practice anything that is fearful to me or anything that's uncomfortable to others and i want them to see themselves on the other side i ask them to tell me how it looks on the other side and that's what we begin to think about how is it going to look when I'm on the other side of the wall. I encourage you, if you haven't done that, if you haven't tried that strategy, to do so. Whatever the wall is you're facing, how is your life going to look on the other side? It draws us toward the future that God has for us. And then we want to blow the trumpet of praise and shout the victory. The word for praise in the Hebrew that was used here is called shabak. Shabak. And that means to address in a loud tone, to triumph, to shout, to sing it out, to command, to glory. This is the shouting praise. It is a shout. A shout commands the victory. It proclaims that the battle was won. And when the trumpets sounded, all the people shouted. They were praising God. They were shouting down that enemy. And when we have received our victory, we want to shout. We want to praise God and shout it out because what we have done is we have shouted out the dark night of the soul. We want to praise him for taking us from our breakdown to our breakthrough. We want to praise him for delivering us from our hopelessness from our fear, from our anxiety, from our anger, from our sorrow, or whatever it is. We want to all praise him for dropping the walls of Jericho. Father, thank you that you are the one who can drop our walls. You're the one that can show us the breakthrough in our faith journey. You're the one that can lead us forward in anything that we're facing, and we claim that for you. We, we thank you that you're going to see us to victory no matter what we are facing. That is the hope we live in, in a personal relationship with you. We praise you and thank you for that. I also thank you for the beautiful lunch that's been prepared for us and all who've been involved in doing that. I pray that you will use this food to nourish us and to give us strength to go out and to do the things that you would have us to do. In Jesus' name, and we all shouted together, amen.